Greetings and welcome to Office Hours. If you are new here and you want to learn a little bit more about what we do, head over to officehours.global. Our first hour, we answer your questions on media and digital productions. And on our second hour, that is when we take time to spend a little bit more time on a subject. And today, we'll be talking about AI productivity. What tools are you using? How is the workflow with some of these AI tools to help you to maximize your time and output? And speaking of output, let's dive into these questions, Bill. Our first one, Liberty, comes from Mike Edwards in Brooklyn, New York. He says, morning, everyone. Would the panel recommend purchasing a refurbished, unclaimed Disco, a Cisco, excuse me, not Disco, Cisco, Meraki Z3, or would it pose more of a security risk than anything else? Go ahead, Jeffrey. Man, I want that Disco, Meraki Disco. <laughs> um, so bottom line is that all of these switches and routers have to be DOD standard on wiping. So you hit that reset button and it's it's fully reset. It's supposed to go through all the all those factors to make sure that it does not have anything on it. Uh, if you're really concerned about it, I wouldn't buy it. But the, for the most part, if it's been reset properly, then uh, there shouldn't be anything that uh, that that should be concerning. Go ahead, Alex. Yeah, the um, uh, Jeffrey's completely right. I, I think that if you you pose very little risk by getting a reset version of this, um, but uh, I if I was doing something that I had to, I'd ever have to go back to a uh, client, <laughs> I would I would just buy a new one. <laughs> um, uh, so, uh, or if I had anything that was super secure, I'd probably buy a new one um, just out of you know just covering all the bases. Um, I think you really want to look at your paying a subscription. The Z3s don't cost that much money new compared to the other ones, at least. So I'd be more tempt. I would te be tempted just to buy a new one because I don't know how much you're saving for it. And then you would never have to think about that. Next question. Justin Blankenship is up next from Lebanon, Virginia. What would cause a live YouTube stream to seem sped up from what the live room feel was? My church band plays songs at a certain pace, which feels okay in a live setting. But when I rewatch it online, it feels faster. Jeffrey? Well, there, there can be a couple of things that could cause this. The first thing that most likely is is the buffering uh, from the machine that's that's streaming it to the internet to YouTube. So what a buffer will do is it will uh, it'll make things speed up and then slow down. Another way, another thing that could happen is if it's you have different cameras set up with audio and you're going through different uh, types of audio with different bit rates to it and sample rates, and so it's trying it's basically just trying to catch up with the band. And usually when you see that, uh, uh, you'll see you'll see a lot of popping and skipping that's uh, between uh, camera to camera. So those are two different things. And then it's just, you know, point of view when you're in the uh, studio. Like, for instance, when I play with the band, I play a lot of music and then I come home, I've recorded it and I'm listening to it or watching it. And it's I'm going to myself, gosh, that's a lot faster than I expected or it's a lot slower than I expected. So it's, that, it's just that point of view that might just be getting you. Alex? Yeah, I would take a look at, at the frame rate that you're shooting the, the show on. Um, if the frame rate doesn't match uh, 30 frames a second, theoretically, YouTube, YouTube should make the conversion of that. It shouldn't just speed it up. But if, you're, um, if your frame rate is something like 25 or 24, um, it could 
be speeding it up to, to match that. Um, that seems like an odd way. Usually YouTube will just add frames. YouTube always streams at 30 frames a second. So no matter what you send it, it's going out at 30 or 60 if you're doing gaming. So if you set it in the gaming mode, it'll do 60. But it's 30 or 60. That's Those are the only choices. <laughs> so if you're shooting, uh, a lot of times we see folks want to do kind of an art project, which is they want to do a 24 frame per second. But um, that just means you're asking YouTube to make up frames for you. <laughs> so I wouldn't do that. Um, so, uh, and, and I know that you think that, you know, not you, but people will think that it's a, uh, that, that, that somehow has a film look. It just looks like 24 converted to 30, um, which is not a pretty look in my opinion. Now, YouTube may be speeding this up for some reason, um, but th that would be, I think, the most, the thing that I would look at the most. To figure out exactly what it is, what I would do is record it locally. So find something that's going to record it locally and then look at it on you and then download the video on YouTube, put them both into your NLE and see which one is longer. Um, and, or, or, and by is what specifically, uh, which one is longer and by how much over one hour. So if you can do it for an hour, look at what the Delta is. Um, so that your local record gets to one hour. What is the, what is the far record? What is the YouTube record at? And then once we know exactly what that Delta is, a lot of times it's much easier for us to figure out what's actually happening. Next question. Next one comes to us from Matt Wood in Newcastle-upon-Tyne. What is the best way of quickly grabbing some domain names if I'm not entirely sure how or where I'm going to host my website yet? Great question, John. You know, after registering thousands of domains, uh, I ended up at Hover uh, because they're clean, no upsells, they're competitively priced, and I uh, haven't had any issues. So I use Hover for creating new domains, and I use WPX, which is WordPress hosting. Those are my two go-tos. And Hubber, H-U-B, or someone H -O -V -E -R. Okay, perfect. Alex? I also use Hover. Um, I've used a lot of other things, and I have a downright dislike for GoDaddy. <laughs> so uh, those guys are the worst. Anyway, uh, and and then um, the, the old one was Net, what was it, Network? Um, uh, Network Solutions. Network Solutions. Yeah, don't, don't use those guys either. So, um, so I don't know about the other ones, but we, you know, we I got into Hover, and it's just so easy to move things around. And yes, you've gotten to a point where we all where we all arrive, which is that we buy lots of domains that we never use, but we can't give them up because they're they're aspirational. It's like buying books, except we pay eight dollars a month a year for them. <laughs> And so we just sit there just going, oh, but I can't give that one up because someday I'm going to create that. Someday, uh, that, one day. That, it's one day, one day. Yeah, exactly. What's the, um, just, is it just ease of use, the difference between? It's like, same thing that John said. It, it, okay. it is, uh, it, there's no upsell. It's clean. They're, the customer service is amazing. Um, they are, uh, and, you know, it's the competitive pricing, um, you know, for what they're doing. They, um, it, it used to be two cows, I think, is it was, they re branded it or, or they bought into it. And so, but it's, um, so that really, you know, it's just that it just works. Um, it, it, it's, you type something in, you can very quickly grab a, grab your URLs. It shows you the long list of all the URLs that you have available with that. Um, that that's the thing to also remember is that I make lots and lots of URLs that I'm only going to use once. So I know that sounds crazy, but I do events all the time and I pop up to hover and I buy that URL for a Halloween project or whatever. There's so many um, suffixes now instead of .com, .net, .whatever that I can just make them all. And I just make these little because I want them to be short so people can type them in if they don't, if the QR code doesn't work or they don't have a way to do a QR code, which is what I use a lot. I make these little URLs and we just register them and then and then forward them to where we need them to go. 
And it's just, it just adds a little bit of quality to what you're doing. And people, instead of using Bitly or whatever, I still use Bitly if I'm doing something disposable. But if I'm working for a client, I will often build a, you know, if we're building a show, I'll often build my own URL for it. It seems like a lot of extra, but it's like $8, you know, in, you know, compared to the, all the other costs that are involved with my shows, $8 is not going to be something anybody notices. Next question. Next one comes to us from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. What credit role at the end of a movie had the most lasting impression on you? Go ahead, Jeffrey. I don't think there's a specific movie. There's there's several different. We do we have a fun little game, uh, me and my wife, where we actually watch the credits and we look for names and we just have you know because the biggest problem that we that we have is that they the credit rolls get basically changed and you know like if you're watching on tv network tv it's just going like 20 miles a minute uh and you can't see a name so we like to just watch all the credits and see names you know especially names with my last name her last name uh and 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 point those out and then just some of the funny stuff but i guess the biggest the first time we noticed this and started doing that or i started doing that was back when uh we were watching things like airplane and top secret where they'd put in funny little uh bits and pieces into the credits alex yeah the um uh, I think that the one that I find the most uh, compelling was a series of unfortunate events. Um, there was just, they retold the story in the credits with a, this, this uh, uh, 2D animation that was all done in After Effects. And it was just really, really fun to watch. Um, and it, I just thought it was so artistic. And, and I actually saw a talk by the folks who did it. And, um, and, you know, it was like they did it over a week and a half in their bedroom, like it was over their living room or something. It was just, they just threw together this incredible, um, uh, you know, piece. So I think that for closing credits, I think those are probably the ones that I thought were, I was always, I've always, when I think when someone says, what is a great closing credit? Those are the ones I think of. I love ones that have, you know, um, you know, pieces of the movie or outtakes are a lot of fun. Um, I think that the probably the fun one that had outtakes that weren't actual outtakes were um, Hangover. So the Hangover, they had the pictures that were on, they took, you know, there was this infamous, you know, night that they had and they finally found the camera and they said, we're only going to look at it once. And then they, they showed the pictures um, of the, from the camera of their, of their crazy night, um, it, you know, as, as part of the role. And I thought that was, that was really good. Bill? Yeah, all those things. I, I was going to say airplane before uh, Jeffrey stole my thunder, and he's absolutely right. For me, that was the one that said, oh, someone with intelligence can do something with the credits that make you want to watch them through to the very end. Most movies still to this day don't. Yeah, I would say I can't even remember which movie started the whole idea of like watching till the end because there's the the outtakes or the oh what's coming next. I know it was way before the Avengers, but I, I can't put my finger on it who kind of started that um, started that trend. But typically when I'm watching, I am watching for like Alex said the outtakes or do I know someone? I'm also looking at like locations, like where was this shot or oh I didn't know that Quebec. Oh my god. And just different places. So I, to this day, uh, I will stay to the very last until the lights go up just to like watch and, and see everyone who, you know, put in the work on the on the movie. Next question. Next one comes from Alex Lindsay in Nevada, California, and it's a self question. I have an Atmos Insta360 link update. 
Ooh, Alex, go ahead. Uh, and Atomos, um, and and it is Atomos. a uh, yeah yeah the um, uh, I can't get it to show any video from any webcam yet. <laughs> so I just want the people know <laughs> I have the webcams, I have the Z. I just want to give an update because I've been asked like three days in a row. So instead of someone waiting for someone to ask, I cannot. Um, so so far, my my Insta three sixty link turns on, moves around, and then turns off immediately. And um, that in the past has been a cable. Um, but I haven't quite figured it out. I'm changing cables through, but I'm giving you some update. I'll give you some uh, you know ongoing updates now that I have all the pieces in place. I'm going to try to change a bunch of the cables today and see if they get better. I might get on the on you know uh, file a ticket with Atomos and see if they have had any issues. But it's not just this camera. I haven't been able to get any of. I have a all of my USB cameras are, tend to be a little bit higher end, so that might be par- a part of the issue. But um, but I haven't been able to get any of them to to see the. It, it says it sees 1080 30. I'm just not getting a, an image out of it. So so we're going to keep on working on that. Um, it it looks like such a cool little screen, <laughs> even if it doesn't work that way. I, I'm I'm not sure if I'm going to give it back. Uh, but but it's uh but I um, because it looks like it could be useful for a lot of other things for that price. But I haven't gotten it to do what we bought it for, <laughs> so we'll see. And can you give us the refresher of so it's just you're just trying to connect? So, so the... this is a yeah, this is a um, uh, oops, this whole thing just came apart, didn't it? All right, um, this is the Atomos Zato, and um, it has uh, the big thing is that it has um, if you, if you look at this here. It's got two USBs that should be in and out. It does matter which which one. Number one is the camera, and number two is the computer. If you do it any other way, it doesn't work. Um, and then it has this little. I think maybe I got this upside down. And then it has um, a PD, a power distribution. So there's the power for it right there. So I plug the power in here, and then I put the webcam into here, um, and then it should both send it to the computer and let UVC control it, as well as be able to go out HDMI so I could theoretically see what's on the on the webcam as well as being able to send it to uh, my switcher you know from an insta 360 link uh, which would be really cool um, but it not yet <laughs> so yeah we'll, we'll stand by go ahead Alexander have you tested it with Logitech cameras at all, or is it just Insta360 cameras that you're testing? Uh, I have a Brio around here somewhere. I haven't used Brios for a little while, but I'll, I'll, I'll try to find a Brio. And we have a bunch of them at the office, and so I'll grab one of those as well and see if those show up. I think it's, good, it's a good idea. Um, but, yeah, I haven't, tr- I haven't tested it with that. I, I tested it with a Razer and with a Dell um, that I had here. Um, yeah, so those are, those are the other ones I've tested with. And so far, the other ones, the, the Insta360 just turns off immediately, um, th- which it does with bad cable, with long cables. So that, it, I've seen that before. It feels like maybe it's not getting a connection through the monitor or something. Um, the other ones are just showing up and they say 108030, like they're getting something, but I'm not seeing any video. So so we'll, we'll keep on keep on working on it. Next question. Next one comes from Chris Widener in Lafayette, Indiana. Has anyone recommendations for a system where people can pre-book and pay for Zoom sessions online, one-on-one sessions and research time and so forth? The museum wants to let staff be booked to help people. 
I raised my hand on that. So I'm thinking that um, a scheduling tool, possibly something like a Calendly or an Equity, could be uh, helpful. I believe both of them not only have like their own standalone interfaces, but Equity, um, you are also able to like embed that into a web page. So possibly testing out those. And I believe that there's a trial period for each. Um, check that out. And that, yes, so that could be something that is helpful for you to 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 do those bookings in advance so that they can schedule and it integrates directly into like if there's a Google Calendar or whatever your your calendar management system is that it connects directly so it also takes some of the the legwork of having to okay they've booked on this web page and then now you've got to set up the zoom and then now you've got to make sure that it gets on your calendar so there are like plugins or apps integrations in there excuse me, to set that up. And then you can also set up, I use Calendly, so you can also set up automations in there. So once someone has booked, then it will send them, so you can send triggers for like reminders and also like at the end of the booking, whether you want to do a survey or follow up, like you can add all of those things. So yeah, definitely uh, try those out and let us know how it works out for you. Next question. Next one from Alex Lindsay is for me. Can Bill give us a summary of Comic-Con? Go ahead, Bill. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Comic-Con was definitely back this year. The last couple of years has been, you know, we had the pandemic when they couldn't do it because of COVID and all the rest of that. Then the last couple of years, there's been mask issues. So the cosplayers who are really serious about dressing up and things like that were constrained by having half their face covered, those who did facial makeup. So yeah, let me give you a little quick tour here. I'm going to pop up. This is the San Diego Convention Center, a beautiful facility, architecturally, both interior and exterior, as you'll see a little later. Uh, This is across the street. This is called the Gas Lamp District. This is kind of, you can see how much money is spent on promotion for this event. They wrap entire buildings consistently. And when you get in close to the gas lamp, there's just tons of stuff going on. There's a whole interior of the convention center, and then there's a whole exterior. Here's a little triptych of the kinds of things. And I particularly wanted to point out the things like Interview with a Vampire on the left, they didn't have this year as much in the convention floor, but they had a whole pop-up at experience. And I think in the marketing world, these are now called activations. First time I had heard that term. And activations, they build an entire pop-up. There was a whole Interview with a Vampire experience, and there was a line that was they had all sorts of lines set up for people waiting to go through this particular thing. On the right, the escape game, this is also something in the gas lamp. So there's tons of stuff just for the community, even if you can't score a ticket for Comic-Con. And they're hard to get and increasingly harder. Let's go inside the show floor. It was crazy packed. This is one of, I think, seven aisles that go the entire length uh, of Comic-Con. You're seeing aisle 2300 there. But I'm going to take you next to Artist Alley. One of the things about Comic-Con is it always was to celebrate the visual arts. So artists literally set up booths in Artist Alleys. These are people that have fans that do it. Here's a quick picture of one of the uh, one of the comic book artists, Jim Benton. And he's sitting there actually drawing specific characters and things like that. And people can watch the process as it goes. You can meet, get autographs and get stuff like that. Some of the larger companies, particularly from overseas, here's the Funko, uh, the, an amazing booth set up, literally just 
tons of money. And as I noted, this takes care of the whole neighborhood around it. Here's part of the gas lamp. People are just kind of hanging out, watching people wander by. At night, there is all sorts of stuff to do. Here's one of the FX uh, activations outside. I wanted to note, because we talk about it a lot, Comic-Con is one of the most universally welcoming things. I mean, I, I truly think that the nerds who were comic fans in the early days have grown up, and now Hollywood is all about this kind of content. But they've always been a very welcoming community. There's a huge disability thing that happens. They're very welcoming, and they have tons of people who do costumes uh, and go to extreme lengths to make these fabulous things. So I've been going and taking photos for a long time. I try to have a theme because if I have a a theme, at least I don't have to shoot everything. And this year my theme was full face makeup. can be extreme like this. Or something more subtle but distinctive like that. And I'm just trying to shoot what I think are interesting-looking photographs of people who have done full-face makeup. So these are some of my very first days as I was trying to get my feet under me and decide what I wanted to do. One of the things I try to do always, Comic-Con's convention center is so cool, I try to work with the architecture and see if I can find things, characters, and part of the architecture that go together and kind of form something that I can't shoot anywhere else. And these are just some of the people we have normal, crazy, uh, sometimes a little outrageous. I'm not quite sure what this character is, but it's pretty fabulous. Uh, so here's kind of, that's the group A. That was when I was getting kind of the traditional kind of cosplay things I do. Also wanted to note, I, I looked at that, I said a lot of men there, not or women there, not so many men, I did get a lot of men, but it's typical that you would see this. Also on the right of this, you can see the scale of some of these costumes. Uh, The guy on the right was on some kind of stilts on a very, very crazy thing uh, that made him taller than everybody. And you see everything. One of the things, the guy in the top photo, uh, (laughs) I had to single him out because horror is a genre. This guy dragged a stuffed dog through the entirety of Comic-Con in this cosplay that was just outstanding. Okay, that's kind of the normal stuff. I wanted to go to day two and day three when I got really serious about finding some things. And this is me trying to find a cosplayer who I think looks great and take them into a location. The first one I was really delighted with was this shot. I don't know whether this is a particular character. I just thought she did such an amazing job of props and everything else, built this entire beautiful world around there. The other thing is I saw a woman who was kind of a natural theme, and I looked around, and we were in front of the big concrete runway of Comic-Con, and I thought, can I find some greenery for her? I asked her to come out with me to the front edge. I found one palm tree. And he was able to get this shot. I thought that was one of the nicest things that I was able to create through Comic-Con this year. Um, Again, trying to work with the building and just see what people are doing. And you get these people who are outrageous. Okay, all that aside, I was walking through the main floor and I saw this young lady. And I thought, oh, the big studios are doing things because... This was an amazing costume. Now, for those of you who don't know The Phantom Menace, this is the character kind of outfit from The Phantom Menace. She did her own version of this. I I was wrong. She was not a professional. She was a young, young girl, maybe 16, 17, from the Midwest, who came out to do this. 
And I asked her to come to an area and let me try to get some really serious photos. This is the first one I ended up with. These people are just unbelievable with the detail they put into this. She made literally every aspect of this. She sculpted the styrofoam insert and laid hair across it strand by strand. She sewed and created every single thing she's doing there. She defined her makeup, got her contacts, and she was just mobbed on the show floor. And she was very nice. I met her mom. Her mom and her brother and her dad were there supporting her in this adventure. So they were kind enough. I asked them, can you come with me and let's try to find some architecture and do some nice shots. So this is my next picture of her. Um, just, you know, you're honoring people trying to do the best they can with cosplay. And then I asked her something really crazy. I said, Dad, would you stand behind her to make sure she doesn't fall? But there's a six-story escalator. And I said, I want to try shooting you while you go down the escalator backwards. And she accommodated me, and I ended up getting this shot, which I think is one of my happiest shots of Comic-Con, just because it shows how much time and effort people put into this sort of stuff. Yeah, so that's my commitment <laughs> is, like, these are great images, Bill. Like, their commitment, and for those cosplay is essentially um, dressing up like a film book character and just the detail. I'm always amazed at how much time and creativity they take and you were able to capture a lot of that in in these photos so thank you so much for that bill i, I know that john said sometimes john, it's also <laughs> just crazy had, had yeah. to throw this in <laughs> it doesn't have to be so serious sometimes it's just people having fun all right right Done. right john i want to know what bill's pitch is to these people does he does he does he get a model release from him and how does he how does he how does he get over the creepy old guy trying to take pictures of these young people? You know, you've learned I've learned that over the course of time. And in this case, let's talk about Padme because you know, she was surrounded by just tons of people. So you watch a little bit and I thought I saw a woman and she had gone up to help her adjust something. I thought that's her handler. She must be a professional. So I went and talked to her and I said, you know, the other thing is I have on my phone some of my best pictures from past Comic-Con. So when I approach somebody, usually I say, I have uh, two pictures in particular that I think are very good and use the architecture. So I say, look, I'd like to try to get something like this. These are some of my earlier shots from previous years. And that usually lowers the temperature. They know I'm serious about taking a photo. And in this case, that woman I thought was our handler said, I'm her mom. And at that point, I connect with the mom. And then it's it takes away all of that. And her mom and her dad and her brother and I all escorted her. Took us about 15 minutes to get to the location I wanted to shoot her at because she was stopped every hundred feet by more people wanting to take pictures with that fabulous costume with her. So you learn. You learn not to be... Um, you, you learn how to do it right. You show them that you're serious about the photography. You're telling them, I want to take you to this area because I think it'll make a great frame for you in your costume. And at that point, you can get buy-in. I had one turn down the whole four days I was there shooting pictures. So it, part of it's just attitude and how you approach people. And for our producers, keep those questions coming. This is a great opportunity to vote for this hour and going into the next hour. And remember, your votes matter. So go ahead and submit your votes for the questions that are in queue. Next question. 
Next question comes to us from Hecken Force of Stockholm, Sweden, doing sports broadcasting and currently use Audio Technica's BPHS1. I get some echo between the announcers sitting next to each other. Will the BPHS1 2 help reducing the echo, or are, do you have other recommendations? Go ahead, Alexander. Yeah, so this is a good example of choosing the right mic for the right application. Uh, polar patterns can make a difference. The S2 appears to have a hypercardioid mic, so hypercardioid mics, although they tend to have a larger rear lobe on the back, which means that you get less rejection on the back versus cardioid, but you can get better rejection on the sides. So if someone's directly beside you, that can help. That being said, having some form of dynamics processing on your mixer can help a lot, be it a downward expander or even better if you have auto mix. Auto mix is where we talk about this a lot on the show, but auto mix will make a massive difference when you have a bunch of open microphones. It will balance the, the levels between each uh, presenter properly and bring them down in the mix when they're not actively speaking. Go ahead, Alex. Yeah, just to expand a little bit on what Alex uh, Alexander was talking about is if the two if your two folks are like this, they're a little thicker. If um, if your two folks are like this talking towards the camera, that polar pattern that is kind of like figure eight here, like this, not quite like, like that, but it'll be is is this is going to reject each other. Whereas if you have them, you know, looking at each other. And their, their their headsets are here and here. That back polar pattern that's going there, maybe picking the other person up and, and crossing over. It was a horrible horrible image. I'm, I apologize. I've never tried to draw polar patterns before. But the point is, is that that right behind them is going to be. Um, so if they're looking right at each other. You could have more problems if they're than if they're in shoulder to shoulder. The, the the mic, and I don't know if it would make any difference. The mic that I've usually seen at most of the broadcasts that we've done is the Sennheiser HMD 27, which is a little bit pricier than that one. Um, but so I don't I don't have as much experience with uh, um, with that mic that headset. But I think that the Dugan Automix is going to be the number one thing that will fix that if you uh, if you can get it applied to the system. Next question. Alexander Knight in Vancouver, British Columbia here on the panel says, I watched Indiana Jones in the Dial of Destiny yesterday. Thoughts on the de-aged Harrison Ford? I was, quote, impressed with what they accomplished. I'm unclear what method was used. Alex? So this was a secret for a long time, um, but they've you'll now see it in the credits. There's a company called Lola. And, uh, and it's a Lola pass. <laughs> and what they do, we're not totally certain, but they're really good at it. And they've been doing it now for, I think it's been um, 15 or 20 years. Um, and it's actually hidden in a lot of actors' contracts that they that, they, that Lola will be used for all of their, you know, for older, for folks that are starting to approach aging, um, they like to be... T- toned up a little bit you know, by Lola. So Lola has been in their contract and it used to not be something that was credited. But if you go back, I bet you you'll find, you'll see a company called Lola um, in the credits because they've now started to get credited for their work. But for, for I think maybe 10 years, they weren't, um, they weren't credited at all. They were just like a secret thing that would happen to actors quietly. Um, and so, uh, but they, they can get pretty aggressive about it. You know, a lot of it has to do with just, it's not really as high tech. It's a lot of filling in a lot of wrinkles and smoothing things out, but, but it's, um, it's a pretty, it's a pretty interesting process there. I think there's a good article maybe a decade ago that was written by Wired Magazine about it. 
Um, so if you go back and look for Wired and Lola, you probably find a great article about what they do. But they, I don't think they talk much about what they do, but they make people look younger. <laughs> so that's what that's what that, that's their main thing. Next question. Tlaloc Lopez Waterman in Brevard, uh, Brevard, North Carolina, says Twitter is being completely rebranded. How is it for a small, medium and large business to make a change like this? Jeffrey. First of all, I want to thank uh, Alex for putting the song Lola in my head for the last couple minutes there. <laughs> um, with the, the, you got to understand that Twitter.com is not going to go away. If, if he chops that hand off, that is going to be the major ultimate everybody leave uh, uh, sinking ship type thing. But uh, you'll still be able to do Twitter.com forward slash whatever, and uh, and still get to right there. Now, on a branding aspect, uh, I've always been told that, if, especially if you take over something, that you usually give it a two-year period, and then you change the name. Elon's never been that type of person that uh, follows those types of rules. So he's just kind of sped up this, this whole thing and given it the brand name. Anyway, he's got SpaceX, so why not regular X? I don't know. That, that kind of works there. But the biggest thing is uh, I, I saw a tweet from Greg Gruenberg, and basically he explains what, what happens with X. And X is basically if uh, it was a way to sign a document from, for anybody that was illiterate, couldn't, couldn't write or anything like that. So um, are we seeing this type of unbranding? Is, this, is that the play on this? I don't know. We'll, we'll have to see. But for the most part, uh, APIs don't change. Uh, well, unless he makes them change. And uh, you'll still be able to use Twitter.com at least for the next five years. And if, like I said, if they chop off that hand, that's where the mass exodus will happen. Alexander? Well, until this question was put in, I had no idea this was going to happen. So I'm going to stay out of predictions or why they're doing this but and answer it in the most generic of possible ways because we've talked about branding on the show. Obviously, most people know branding is crucial to any business, whether it's small, medium, or large, uh, and it can make it break the business. And we've seen examples in the past where rebranding has done very well for companies and other times where it has back it has backfired and they have had to make changes too. So that's all I, I, I will say about that. I, whether or not it's going to work out for them, I don't, I don't think it's going to... If they're thinking that this is going to like sweeping past problems under the rug that people are going to forget about it, I... I don't think that's going to happen. So I, I don't really have any feeling about it either way. John? So so note that Elon is trying to match WhatsApp and features. And so expect payments and all kinds of other features that Twitter never had, hence the branding. But now what do we call tweets? That's my question. Ooh, that's a great question, Alex. You know, I, I think that I, uh, I really thought he was going to pull it out. <laughs> Like I thought he was gonna. I thought it was gonna work. I thought this was gonna work. I'm starting to. I'm starting to. Uh, I, even for me, uh, I'm starting to wonder whether this is actually gonna work out. You know, like it, there was something about changing the name, um, and some pretty just rough ads I've gotten or rough stuff that I've that I've gotten, and I'm starting to wonder whether this is all gonna come out the other end. Um, and I haven't really questioned it until this week. Like it was like I was. Oh, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. He'll 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 sort it out. And I'm, I'm, I'm now starting to, I, I will say, we'll, we'll see what happens. I mean, we, we never know. And I'm pretty committed to it because it's really the only place I have a reasonable number of followers and the followers are very dense, you know, like I haven't done any real work to gain followers. So I just say whatever I'm going to say. And, uh, and so it's a very dense following and, and I, I don't want to give it up. So I'm, I'm still hanging in there, 
but a little concerned now that that it's just going to be it's just going to get to some point where we kind of it goes goes the way of MySpace where it doesn't really go away, but we stop really paying attention to it the way we did before. So oh, I, I love listening to all of those those insights on what could and what Twitter's doing. And just to follow with Alexander, what he shared is I've been a part of a couple of rebrands, one at the governmental organization phase where uh, government, some small businesses as well. And whenever an organization goes through a rebrand, there's typically that they've either changed either demographic, like audience-wise potentially, or there are some services that they are now prioritizing over others. And because a brand is really what people say or know about your business. So we even saw most recently with Meta. So Facebook was the name while it was a platform, but all these other tools that they had housed under that. And then they said, no, well, you know what? Facebook is a item. We want to help people continue to maintain that that's what Facebook is. It's not the company company's identity. So that's where Meta came in. So that's where they house all the other products and services underneath that. So anytime you're looking to do a rebrand, sometimes it could be a matter of weeks and months, depending on how much needs to be changed, how clear you are on the messaging that you want to put out. And sometimes it can take months years, especially if there are more, depending on how many stakeholders, how many departments, and and of course, budget. So um, just going back to the question, what is it, it? The timing varies. It's all about getting as comfortable as possible that you are effectively communicating your your identity, your services, um, what you, what technology or anything like that, that you might change or you're making a pivot to and effectively communicating that to your audience because with that, it could be things like the visual identity that you now need to go through research and user research and and then getting new designs. Or is it really just as simple as, and I, I don't like using that, so let's take that, strike that. <laughs> is it that you are, it's, it's name, it's URL, it's social handle. So it ranges in complexity, but there's there's this checklist that you want to go through because you want to make sure that your audience is very clear on who, what, where, when, and and that's kind of the, the nature of a reband and how many people are involved in that process. Next question. Next one comes to us from Chris Widener in Lafayette, Indiana. Are there any good alternatives to noip.com for redirecting dynamic IPs? Jeffrey? The one that I use is that a lot of people use is Cloudflare, and uh, it, it's a great. It, it, I like it because it can do a lot more than just uh, do the IP redirection. But you have like Amazon's Amazon Route Fifty Three, I think it's called Cloud DNS, uh, Google Cloud DNS. Though those are some of the options, uh, and there, there's a list of them that you you just have to do a quick search on, and and you'll find uh, some names. But yeah, Cloudflare is the one that I recommend. Next question. Eduardo Augustine, Panama. Pan, uh, Panama, up next. Any update on your Telestrator app, Alex? We're looking forward to it. Alex? Yeah, it's so close. I, I, there's a couple little weird... What's <laughs> the last little bit? Everything works. There's just a couple little things that... that uh, uh, Wansi Ribbles and I are, are, are working on. Um, so, so I, we're just working on it. Um, so, uh, yeah, it, it's all, you know, it, it, it's way better than I have ever had one of these work. Um, so, uh, it, it works well. There's a couple things on the iPad that we're trying to fix because I want to put it out as iPad slash, uh, Mac 
um, software. And so getting that that two things to work has been a little bit of a, there's just one little glitch that we're working on. But if you'd like to beta, test it, uh, you can ping me directly in Discord and we'll send you a beta. Next question. Rick Coombs in Columbia, uh, Tennessee says, is there a way to scan a QR code that someone has sent to your phone from that phone? Go ahead, Alex. Yeah, I believe that if you, um, it depends on, I don't know how to do it on Android. On the uh, iOS, if you save it to Photos or Notes, you should be able to select the uh, QR code in either Photos or Notes, and it will take you to the URL. Next question. Nice. Funsak Georgi in Dharamshala, India. We are buying a Behringer XR12. Can we control it with an Android tablet or do we need anything between the XR12 and an ATEM other than the two XLR female to 3.5 millimeter stereo interconnect cable? Alexander? In these kind of scenarios, I always recommend getting some kind of bidirectional balancing box where you're not only matching gain, but you're matching impedances as well, going from consumer uh, to um uh, to professional uh, levels. So something like the Art Clean Box Pro, that's what I use. It's very inexpensive. That works really well where you can feed it a balanced XLR and then go really, really, really short, unbalanced out of that into your ATEM. Uh, on the higher end, the Henry's uh, Matchbox HD, Henry Engineering Matchbox HD will do that as well for you. It is more expensive and uh, build quality is a little bit better on those. The nice thing about the Henry stuff is that if you need to have multiples, you can actually get a rack mount unit because they are designed for broadcast environments. So presumably they would last a little bit longer. But the, the art box has been working fine for me, and that's what I usually suggest to people. Go ahead, Jeffrey. Yeah, the same thing. I actually had this conversation yesterday with my sound guy and uh, for our band, and he basically just said, don't go cheap. It's you're, you're going to run into too many problems. And I totally agree on that. There's certain things you can try to go cheap on, but uh, that's not one of them. And uh, just uh, have a good connection. Make sure your cables are are high end. They're not something that you've used for the last 20 years and uh, you'll be fine. And Alex, I would look really hard. We we I had an XR12 and then I got an XR18 and I would look at the XR18 really hard before I bought an XR12. <laughs> Like it's just there's a lot more outputs, a lot more I/O. Um, it, it's a significantly better machine. I mean, it's not like a little better; it's a lot better um, of a box than than the than the 12. So if you if there's any way you can afford an XR18, um, you know the XR12 will be what you need today. The XR18 will be what you need tomorrow, um, and the X the X32 will be what you need in a year. <laughs> like like that's the you know so you just have to decide how many times you want to buy uh, a mixer or how many times you might reuse it. And a reminder to our producers, you can submit questions at any time. Next question. Harken Force, Stockholm, Sweden. Recommendation for a mic preamp to use with Magewell's ProConvert AES67. And he's got a link there. Alex? Yeah, I'm just taking a look at it right now. It's hard. It's <laughs> Let me get them right in, in, the, in the show here. Let's see here. This is a... So what you're trying to do is, is get a... You need a balanced um, line input is what you need to convert to AES um, 67. That's that's my assumption here, so that you can't have a, it, it looks like it's not going to take, oh, it'll take balanced or unbalanced. 
um, in and out, but it will not take, but it needs to be a line level. Um, and if you're trying to take a mic into that, one thing that you may want to look at as a simple box, but not necessarily the least expensive box is the um, sound device that still makes, I believe, an MM1. Um, and the, the sound device's MM1 is going to have a, um, a really great, so I'm just trying to find out how much it, how much it costs now these days. Um, so the MM1, yeah, it's about $700. And so it's a little bit expensive. Um, it's a great, it's a, a really, really good mic preamp um, that is just going to do one thing. It's just like a Dropbox. You have, um, you have your mic input, you can gain it up and send it out as a, uh, um, as a line output. Um, and so that, that may be, I have to admit, that's the only one I've used in the last 15 years is, is the MM1. And it, and it works really well. It's built like a tank. Um, I don't know if a lot of other ones that are just simple, um, a lot of other preamps that are just simple throughs of one mic in line out. Next question. Douglas Carmichael's uh, up next. He says, wait, am I in the right place? No, yeah, Hawk Force. Yeah, now Douglas Carmichael. With so many reports of 70 millimeter IMAX screenings of Oppenheimer plagued by technical issues, do you think that the film revival has a long term future? Alex? Yeah, the 1570, uh, which is where the, a lot of these technical issues are happening, is uh, really rare. No one om almost ever uses it. So it gets that, that projector gets turned on. That projector sits like next to the next to the digital projector that's generally used for everything on an IMAX screen. Um, and so usually the, the operators are using what are called DCPs. These are like these little blocks of, of data, little hard drives, and they drop those DCPs into the digital projector and that's and that's what goes out to the IMAX screen. In about a total of 55 theaters around the world, and about 30 in the United States, they had they they brought back these the, these 15 these are 15 perf uh, 70 millimeter film. They are exceptionally hard to work with, um, and it's the machines haven't been used. They get used like once every two years, <laughs> you know, like so like because it's every time Christopher Nolan puts out a film, they they have they have they they run them, run them through here. They the operators there's not that many operators that know how to put them together. Um, they're just a really hard thing to kind of get working. So it's not it, it, in the first weekend. It's not. I'm sure that they they had a couple bad. You know, it was probably one of the first four. Is my guess uh, projections probably the first one for most of these. So it was probably the very first time or the second time they got it going. Is because it's the first time because they didn't get it right, or it's the second time because it's the first time they had to flip in at at speed because. The first one was probably set up days before <laughs> because you got all the time in the world. There's no other projector using it. So the first uh, plane probably went great. And the second one, they have a half an hour to get it back to where it needs to go. You got to remember, this is a 600 pound uh, reel. You know, this is not like a little a little thing to move around and just it's not like you're pulling it off and putting it on and restringing it. It's a thing. And so um, so I, I think you want I think we want to be kind of, you know, I, I there were some technical issues in the first day. A lot of people complained about it on Twitter because that's what people do. And now it's fine. <laughs> and it is blowing the doors off of every record that I think that, I mean, if you look at the numbers, it's just, it's, you know, it's making a lot of money. And so I don't think anyone's going to look at like, oh, we shouldn't do this anymore. If anything, I think that, uh, you know, theaters ought to think about what it takes to put more of these really big, because those, I'll tell you, the theaters that have the 1570s, the Metreon, for the entire run, Every single plane of the entire run, 10.30 in the morning, noon, everything is sold out. Like, I mean, it's effectively sold out. I mean, there's some like front row seats in the corners that are open, but it's 80, 90 percent 
capacity for every single plane at the Metreon. So uh, I, I don't know if that, I think that if anything, it argues that we should do more film, you know, and, you know, for, for these. And if, you know, I think that a lot of the, the film industry ought to think about how to do really, really high quality outputs for only a handful of films because they're not going to be able to keep on doing lots of little ones. That's, uh, that's what streaming does. Bill? I read that the expectation for the opening of Oppenheimer over its first two days was 40 to 50 million. It ended up doing 80 plus million dollars. And I saw this in one of the trade papers. This is actually the the big film. It barely fits into the platter. The thing is just massive. It's 11 miles long. If you unspool it, the the movie's approaching, I think, are right over three hours in length. So, yeah, it's not surprising to me that it's causing some technical glitches here in its rollout, but it seems to be crushing it out there. So all of you who bought into the Barbieheimer thing and saw both Barbie and Oppenheimer in the single day, bravo to you. You can tell your grandkids. Alexander. Yeah, I mean, IMAX seems to be doing really well. I have not been able to book tickets for this uh, for this show, for the th- seats that I want. Most of them are all taken up, and I actually had to go two weeks out on the ticket site to try to even find it, so that says something. I don't think this is a portent of, of uh, film revival necessarily, but when you're someone like Christopher Nolan who has that gravitas, who has that pedigree, I think, uh, you know, if, if Christopher Nolan wants to do film, I think people will be interested in it, but I don't think it's something that's going to be widespread necessarily. However, I've always, uh, as a film connoisseur myself, who someone who loves older movies, I've always loved the way that film looks. Uh, I think there's always a space for it. I find it really interesting that people seem to want to add film grain back to things that are shot on digital to make it not look so digital so it's kind of funny we see this in the music production world as well why do we add um you know why do we add distortion to songs that were recorded digitally because it sounds pleasant i mean we're so we're adding stuff back there's obviously something missing and people feel that it's necessary so it's cool and alex yeah, the um, I, I do think that it's, uh, I, I don't think that it needs to be a film revival, but I do think that there's an argument that you could have movies that you've decided. I mean, maybe it's only <coughs> Christopher Nolan that gets to do these or, or you know, maybe one or two others that, that are really shot for that. But I think there's an argument to be shot for IMAX um, and really put out there. At, I, I will say that I, um, having looked at a lot of the, you know, the, the more square frame, you know, I know we, there's a real push towards uh, two, three, five, and, you know, all these wider formats. I really enjoy the, the square frame you know, that, that IMAX produces. Um, I, I, I have found that I, I like that a lot more than I thought I would. Um, it just feels more immersive on a really large screen. And Alexander? Yeah, just quick to, quickly to add to that. Alex, did you see uh, Zack Snyder's uh, Justice League, the the new edit in the IMAX, for the, that I larger format? I thought it's it looked good. really good. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, And he actually did a black and white version, and I thought it looked especially good in that format. Yeah, you know, I, I, I've always been kind of a more of a widescreen person. And, and then I, for a long time, from a practical perspective, I was like 16 by 9, like just do everything in 16 by 9 because that's what it's going to end up in everywhere and so we don't want any letter boxing but but i will say that there is a there's something about that the the imax format um that's a little bit more vertical that that i think is uh is really compelling next question 
Foon Shakdorji is back from Dharamshala, India, with high panels. What kind of mics would you use to interview two guests in a hotel room? Jeffrey? I'd go for straight-up dynamics, SM58s uh, on stands, as close to the mouth as possible. You do not know what the room is going to do, and you could rearrange furniture and put up blankets and cover lights and all that other good stuff and still have semi-good room acoustics. So a good dynamic microphone up at the face uh, is always going to counter a lot of those little problems there. Uh, if you don't want to do XLRs, if you're looking for USB, uh, companies like uh, you get the hybrid microphones like the ATR uh, 2100, I think is the number, or IK Multimedia has the uh, has a USB, the HD rig, uh, which you can plug in straight up USB and control from there. So some different options. Of course, XLR, I would go the standard SM58 with maybe a wind filter and a pop filter. Alex? Yeah, the uh, I definitely agree with the the dynamic mic approach um, to that process. I mean, I think that uh, I I don't use the SM I don't use the um, SM58s in a in a studio environment uh, mostly because their high end doesn't. I get compl- I, I can hear the difference in the high end, so um, so they they don't pick up on the high end as well. Um, so uh, I I would probably use a high LPR40 or a Sure SM7B. Um, those would be the the two that I'd probably lean towards the most um, as far as those goes. Of course, there's the RA20. Um, so those are those are other ones. But the RA20 will be a little bit more sensitive to all of the stuff around you. What you don't want to do is do a large dynamic mic or a condenser mic because you probably pick up a lot of the stuff in the rest of the room um, where the dynamic mics will tend to fall. Their off-axis rejection is, tends to be a little bit more. You have to get really close to that mic, but it, it definitely makes a difference. Um, and just what I've learned is throw the blankets, take the blankets off and throw them on the the TV. The TV seems to produce a lot of reflection. <laughs> so I've learned to take the blanket off the bed and throw it on the TV. And that, that helps a lot. And Alexander? Yeah, I actually use the Electrovoice RE20s. I, I, I really love them. Those are my they go are great. to. They're great. Yeah. Ones. The, I used the. Uh, I did a shoot in a hotel with three people. Now, that hotel room was not too bad acoustic-wise because they, they had two beds and heavy drapes covering the windows, so that worked pretty well. But I had three people sitting on chairs side-by-side side with RE20s, and it sounded really good. I, off-axis rejection, I find, is pretty good on those mics. I will say with the with the variable D technology, it, the, it is a little bit more forgiving, which is why I tend to use it, because you get a little more room to kind of move around the microphone and not have it completely drop off the mic. So if you have somebody who doesn't have good mic technique, that's where the RE20 really shines. Next question. Douglas Carmichael says, I've heard the Blackmagic Design Ursa Mini Pro 12K has IMAX level resolution. If you were going to use the 12K as a studio camera, what switcher would you need to get it into Zoom, Mimo Live, and so forth? Would the Constellation 4K suffice? Alex? Yeah, so I have both the Constellation and a bunch of the 12Ks. Uh, the, the, the 12K doesn't get out the camera. So the camera is the, the camera can shoot 12K and can also do 8K120. Um, but the most, the, the most it can push out of the SDI is 4K60. Um, so 4K60 is the maximum. So what you can do, though, is you could, for instance, shoot 8K120 
stream uh, 4K 60 and then potentially rebuild it at 24 if you wanted to. So those are a bunch of different options there um, that, that that might be possible. But you can't, there's not, all you can do on the 12K and 8K is record it. John? So I had my 12K connected to the machine for a while and I hooked it up to the web presenter 4K. It didn't look great. And my Sony looks way, way better. So there you go. But, but I, and I think Alex. that's... I think that's color management too. I mean, like, so if it didn't look great, I mean, it, 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 there's no reason why it can't look probably very, very close to the Sony. It's just that the Sony out of the box has better color, color, um, than the, than the black magic. Um, so there's something about the, the Sony one where you don't put anything on it you say, I just want video and the, and what, you know, just video out of the Sony looks better than what comes out of the black magic. But if you get a better LUT on it, one of the problems with the 12Ks as they relate to the switcher is that the, that the 12Ks for whatever reason are not shadable. <laughs> so you can't, you can't control color um, uh, and shading, or you can control the aperture, but you can't control any of the color on the 12K. You can only do that with the mini Ursa or broadcast Ursa, um, which is, I, I'm, I don't know what happened there. <laughs> we just can't do it. Next question. Next one comes from Mel Wilson Spiro in Berlin. Uh, he says, has anyone on the panel ever daisy-chained a bunch of Datapath FX4s together? What was it like? I know they have the capability, but I've never worked on a project that needed enough for me to daisy-chain them. I have not tried that out, and I'm looking at... Okay, Jeffrey? So, uh, no, I have not, but it feels like it's the same as if you take a bunch of ATEMs and put them together uh, and then uh, chain them up from there for an ATEM. You ha also have the software that you can uh, connect up to to make some really cool uh, uh, switches from there. So if I'm assuming the Datapath FX uh, also has that type, same type of software and being able to do all those switches uh, for the multiple machines might be the, the path to go. But yeah, I've never done that with that device. Next question. Nathan Kordaika in Hamilton, Canada says, any experience with reliable cloud distros for pushing a produced live stream to TikTok or Instagram? Alex once mentioned a phone-to-phone -phone box he built to stay within the Insta guidelines. Any guidance appreciated? Alex, do you remember what that could have? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's um, Yellow Duck is the one that a lot of people use to uh, extract the um, the Instagram solution. The uh, TikTok, I don't know what the back end is for TikTok. I don't think there is one. Um, and so Instagram has Yellow Duck and there's um, there's the YOLO box, I think, actually goes to Instagram, which I've been told is actually pretty stable for that that procedure. So I've talked to some folks with YOLO boxes and they um, they have been successful at sending that out. Um, the way that we've done it as a general purpose solution um, has been to, uh, it sounds crazy, but I, I know, but it, it works, which is that we build a tent where we basically line up a, a cell camera, a cell phone to a monitor and we shoot the monitor, but we build a tent around it and it takes a lot of tweaking to get everything just, you know, just right for the cell phone. Um, you still end up, you know, but you don't have any highlights and, you know, it, it looks like you're shooting from that camera. And the main thing is it gets past, you know, it, it looks like a cell phone. We used to do that because Facebook would give you a, a longer, a, uh, a lot more reach before 20, before the spring of 2017, Facebook would give you a lot more reach if you were using a cell phone rather than, a, than streaming to Facebook. And so what we would do is do that. And then we'd have a whole production pipe on the other end and send it literally do it. We'd be doing something somewhere in the world. We'd send it back to our facility in DC 
and shoot a monitor, <laughs> like, you know, and so, um, and so it was, uh, it was just an easy way for us to manage that. Uh, it's, it takes about half a day to get it working just right. And then you never want to take it down because it took a half a day to put it up. Um, but it's, uh, but you know, to get it, cause you have to get it lined up perfectly and you have to, you know, it takes some time to get that all working. Um, but, uh, that's the way we've done it in the past. But again, Yolo box will do it, um, into Instagram, I believe. Um, it acts, and the main thing is you just need something that acts like a phone, um, and then, and then pu- pushes it in. Um, it'll be interesting to see, whether the iPad, the new version of the iPad with a webcam or with a with a something that looks like a webcam will look like a camera to Instagram. It'll I, we're not sure if it'll do that or not. And Jeffrey, I saw you holding something up there. Yep. This is the uh this is the in-stream from Yolo Yolo Box Yolo Live. And let, let me switch over to this camera right here. So with this, oh, it's still a little bit overwashed, but uh you have this little area right here that uh you can uh, expand out and then it comes with Instagram, TikTok, you can do a Zoom, you can do Facebook and CapCut. Those are the five that you have for options. And uh yeah, so that that basically I've been playing with this with a couple cameras. I also have the new PTZ Optics Studio Pro camera, which also does vertical video. So I've been putting that into here, and then uh, a couple PTZ cameras trying to figure out how you how you do that so you could actually use your regular cameras. And uh, I'm also going to be doing the iPhone next to come into here to do that. So you have two HDMIs and one USB option, and you can also record and stream. Uh, There is nothing that'll take you to multiple services if you're looking for that. So keep that in mind. Other than that, uh, it's... It's it's been doing the job that it, that it's intended to do, and uh, I'm hoping to get my live on Instagram soon so I can test that out. Awesome. What a great first hour. Thank you so much, producers, for submitting your questions. Keep them coming as we make this transition to AI and productivity, and where we'll discuss some of the tools that we are using, how we're actually integrating them into the workflow. I know I'm excited to hear from the panel and hear your questions as I add to it as well. There are some, there's almost like a tool that comes out every day. Like you could just get take up all your time just researching the different tools from capabilities in in like Notion, Zapier, and all the other startups that are out there. And one of the main reasons that people are are looking in and diving into this AI and productivity space is just the cost savings of like your time. Um, There's a research report that I read where over across like three three case studies, and this was just using ChatGPT, so not even integrating with too many other apps, but they saw a 66% increase. And I'll I'll drop the link to the article um, for it to be sent over to you to read. But just even 66%, can you just imagine over the time of a a week or your day, just being able to shave minutes, hours, and what that can do for your productivity Um, in-house, some of the things that, or some of the tools that we use. And, And there's a lot of them are still very, 
very much basic because as a, a production company and agency that we are using ChatGPT being one of the main ones, but even looking at Zoom and using the transcription services there, what that will help us to do from a productivity standpoint is we have certain keywords that we'll use during the course of a meeting. And then so therefore that gets handed off to someone else on the team that they are just pulling the transcript and then being able to pull those keywords to know exactly where those action items are in the meeting notes. So imagine that might seem really simple, really basic, but what that does is enables you're not necessarily going through, you've got the chapter markers that are helping you to be able to just extract the critical information that you need because it's it takes a little bit of thought in that to to come up with what will work well as a workflow for you for your team but then being able to quickly pull those items out and then transfer them to a you know a project management tool uh looking forward to see if zoom might have something that could integrate <laughs> with a project management tool so that could go directly there but um that's definitely one of the ways that i i could see that helping event planners, event organizers as well there. And um, just pulling in some some thoughts from the panel. Alexander, how are you using AI tools in your productivity? Yeah, I'm just waiting for AI to eventually take over those scrum meetings in the morning. Uh, I have largely ignored AI for quite a while until the actually the last couple of months, I've been talking to a lot of people, people that are not... Uh, necessarily steeped in this kind of stuff. They don't really live on the bleeding edge of technology, but it's really interesting. It's, you know, it started with chat GPT. I know somebody that has started using it to write press releases and it actually is doing a decent job better than, I mean, they're not an expert in writing press releases. So it's really made a difference for them in their small business. Uh, how I have been using it is ever since I, I heard of uh, Opus uh, for creating social media content, I it, it has been a complete life changer. I mean, I love creating content, but the soul sucking aspect of creating these 60 to 90 second clips takes up so much of my time. I mean, I'm working seven days a week. I have a full time job with a side hustle of producing podcasts for people. So I have no personal time for anything. And it's Actually, it's been starting to get to me a little bit. So Opus has been amazing and they're constantly adding features and it has been saving me anywhere from six to eight hours of work, if not more, on doing this stuff. And it's doing a really good job. It does make mistakes uh, and it, there's a few things I wanted to do, but it has made a drastic improvement in my life. And it's not as good as a human editor, but it is improving at such an incredible pace that you can't you can barely keep up with this stuff the one thing that concerns me is that there's so many players right now i don't know what the longevity of this is and i think we're going to see a lot of companies kind of just go away that's the one thing that has kept me from i know i'm paying for opus but i'm not I'm not really willing to give them money for an entire year of service because I don't know if they're going to be around a year from now. I mean, the CEO is saying that they're still not profitable at this point. So that's the one thing that gives me pause. But I, I think it's making a huge impact in my life, and I'm sure it is for others. So it's really interesting. Jeffrey? Yeah, the first time that I actually used uh, uh, AI for uh, in, a, in a more productive uh, environment was I was 
I was at these blogger events and uh, and people were just talking and just like you're, you're trying to keep up with everything. So I pulled out uh, I pulled out uh, otter.ai just came off this brand new and in, in beta mode. And I set that right in front and it started transcribing everything that was uh, being said. And I was able to pull those off and, and turn around, actually go from the, the phone, which was what was recording to the desktop, which you could actually see it within like a five to 10 minute uh, period. So I can then pull out quotes and then uh, I throw it into Twitter and, uh, and, and, or X or whatever it's called now and, uh, and be able to uh, get that out as real time as possible. So I've been doing that. Uh, of course, I also have a website and I do a lot of blogging. So uh, uh, putting in the productive, not only just the fact of creating the blogs, which I try not to do as much uh, because uh, I, I just started a brand new show last week, and uh, and the one thing I wanted to say uh, do is not m- make it script my shows for me. I want to script my own shows, but I can give have it give me ideas. Like for instance, uh, t- there's a lot of tech websites out there, and half of them now have way too many pop ups. Or you go to a, a tech website, and then next thing you know that you you have to pay for their t- just to uh, read the articles. So, but uh, a lot of times I can go to some of these AI uh, areas and check out some of the news that's happening without getting completely inundated with uh, with pop-ups. Another thing I've been working on, and this is kind of visual, I'm going to show this really quick, uh, and that's the way that I'm basically showing my studio. So if you take a look at this, this is me at in my studio, and this is com- completely AI generated from the area of a 1080p area all the way to 4K. Now, uh, so I use Photoshop. You just saw the change right there. Uh, so all those edges are were done through Photoshop, through generative AI. We got a big group that's uh, that's playing with this idea, and because the idea is spawning a possible new business out of things where, you know, I can take a pick, a snapshot of this and then uh, do generative AI and Photoshop and then create uh, different scenes, different frames for them to, to come in and have a, f- you know, larger, they can start at 360 and then, they, and then we can have it pull up to 1080. It's, uh, it's definitely changing the way the green screen works in, uh, in production. And uh, I have a feeling that, you know, there's a lot of greens, you know, it will, green screen will never go away, at least at this point. But with the fact of generative AI, and the fact of, you know, the like, how TikTok picks, takes out the uh, and puts in virtual backgrounds and things like that. I, I think we'll see a big difference in how people use that. Alex? Yeah, I, I think that one of the things that I'm really thinking about a lot is is trying to keep AI away from necessarily the creative process, but keeping it, having it handle. I think that that's going to, I think that the real risk, we talked about this a little bit on Sunday, is I think that there is a real risk of what I would call the junkification of the social networks that could destroy them. Like this is something that AI I think could, you know, us being able to effortlessly dump huge amounts of content into the into the networks um, could really <laughs> cause more problems than I think we we we, we realize. Um, but I but I will say that I think that there's a lot of things like we're really thinking about hard in office hours about creating kind of a service for our members, which is that 
you know, what if we can take all those first hour questions and dice them up and then start building separate playlists? So let's say I might want a playlist where it's all audio or all video or all whatever, and I can just listen to that. That is a very labor intensive thing for us to do by hand. But you'll see that that um, we're kind of pushing at the hosts specifically here to um, say next question very clearly. And the reason we're doing that is so that eventually AI will be able to grab onto those sections and just cut between from, you know, the beginning of next question to the, you know, um, to the next you know question out and just automatically produce a huge amount of content for us that isn't really more content. And we're not trying to make it viral. We're really just trying to make sure that if you really wanted to just listen to something, you could. But those are the kind of things that you can do because you can set up a set of rules and just have it do it as opposed to um, having somebody go in, it wouldn't take that long, but it would still be someone, an hour of someone's day every day to do that, um, which wouldn't necessarily make sense. So, so I think that there is a, um, uh, those kinds of things of being able to go out and grab um, that, being able to s- potentially summarize the entire show, I think is really, really interesting. Um, um, but I do think that also we're, we're looking heavily from a productivity perspective um, at languaging and being able to, you know, not only build summaries, but build multiple languages of everything. Um, so, so I think that, you know, making it more accessible, uh, making it um, easier to make it more pliable for a lot of people that, that may want to look at it in a different way. Um, those are all things that, that we're really thinking pretty hard at. Um, as far as what I use it for today, ChatGPT is the thing that I probably use the most as far as a productivity. ChatGPT and MidJourney. MidJourney mostly for um, ideas. Like I... I needed to build, I'm working on a design for a concert stage. So I want it to look a certain, you know, I have to have a, you know, what do I want it to look like behind, you know, a lot of different players. And so I just started putting terms into mid-journey and I produced hundreds of concepts. <laughs> now now we can sit down and I grabbed about 20 or 30 of them. Now I'm going to have a meeting uh, this week with some folks and go, well, here are some ideas, you know, and they're not just me trying to find Google, Google you know, existing ones, because usually with most existing ones, I look at them and I go, well, that's good but I wouldn't do this, this, and this, you know, almost every, any concert venue that I look at, I'm like, there's like six things that I probably wouldn't want to do. So I don't want to make those examples. Whereas in mid journey, I can sit there and, and have it look really close <laughs> to what I want because I can throw away hundreds and hundreds of photos. There's really only about 20 or 30 photos that are worth having uh, on the internet, uh, you know, uh, with, con- you know, small concert spaces um, that, that are, you know, high quality. So, um, so, so I think that there's a, uh, uh, that's what I'm kind of, you know, that's where thinking through that is really interesting. The other thing with, with, uh, chat GPT is I have it explain things to me all the time. Someone says something, I say, tell me about this. And what's interesting, the, the, the thing that's really important is saying it's setting a reference point in chat GPT is the, is the secret sauce. You are this and I am this, like now explain this to me. So you are. Uh, Richard Feynman, I am a fifth grader, explain, you know, string theory, (laughs) like explain this, or uh, you are this and I am a student or uh, I'm a, I'm, I'm one of your peers and it will change the whole process of what it does um, inside of that. And I find that to be very, um, you know, very powerful, you know, is to be able to, um, you know, and it doesn't necessarily mean that that's the only place I look, I can still Google things, but I'll be honest with you that, uh, ChatGPT is about as accurate as the internet. <laughs> like you know, like when I search things and I look at what you know, um, 
yahoos are saying about any technical thing they're not that much more accurate than than chat gpt but if i look at chat gpt sometimes i can build a contextual understanding of something and then start cross-checking its notes which is what i would do with anybody's website i think you um touched on something there alex with even with explaining what you're trying to do or what's happening with office hours to like pull the questions to create playlists like if you can talk through this for a second of just your process of what do you look at that this is like, okay, we're going to see if there's an AI solve for this and what that thinking part, because that's the thing with all of these apps, you can, I said that earlier, like you can spend so much time with these tools that are out there, but trying to find the right tool to help you with your solution. And we don't know what the tool is yet. We're still looking at, I mean, Opus right. is, I'm trying to figure out how to do it in Opus. <laughs> like so, so that's the, you know, so I haven't quite figured that out yet, but, but the, um, <clears throat> but the idea but though the is process. Yeah. And, and I'm also looking at potentially doing it with uh, even Resolve, you know, like just, just putting into Resolve and having an ID those things, but there's not enough, quite enough scripting, you know, we'd have to build a plugin to do that, you know, so I'd, I'd rather have it just process the video. There's other issues, like for instance, um, one of the things that um, we are interested in doing is taking little snippets out of uh, the Michael Krasny's, you know, Gray Matter show and um, being able, but the problem that we have is that we do a super source with the, with Michael and the and the guest. So what I want to do is record the ISOs of both of those and then rebuild that, you know, with that. So it doesn't have the, you know, that doesn't have those cuts in it. Same thing with this show here. So when we, some people have been playing with using, uh, we have, um, uh, 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 one of our, one of our members is playing with, um, getting you know building shorts uh, but the problem really is that we're still cutting out of a super source which doesn't look great and so um uh so what we want to do is what i'm realizing is we need to have like active speaker and something else you know like a couple of different things that we're grabbing onto so then i need to throw that into an some version of take these and edit them together automatically and again i look at things that are difficult because they're tedious like tedious is what I'm trying to get rid of, not creativity. I'm trying to open up more space for creativity by getting rid of all the tedious stuff. Like one thing that we're thinking about right now is that there's a problem with um, Zoom. So if you do a podcast over Zoom that we run into is that you have, um, I'm speaking, if I'm recording Zoom ISO on one side, it means that the, the host who's local, if the host is local, will, will immediately butt up against the person who's finishing saying what they're saying. But because we're going to a server and back for both of them, there's a little gap of about 300 to 500 milliseconds between when the host finishes asking a question and when the person starts to talk. And that little gap, you know, it's fine. It's not a, it's not a, people get kind of used to it. But when you take out that little gap, it feels like they're in the same room. It creates more immediacy. And so a lot of times we go in and pull those little gaps out, you know. But you can't right now, we're, we're playing with Descript to do that. Descript hasn't been great at it. Um, it, it, it it's a little ham-fisted in the way that it cross-fades between the two things. And so we're trying to figure, you know, it doesn't do that as cleanly as we'd like. Because what we needed to do is be a little smarter. Like, don't look for gaps. Because sometimes someone just th stops and thinks. I need you to look at when you're going from one person to the other and then remove that gap, but leave, a, you know, but, but let me leave a little bit in there for a breath. You know, like there's a bunch of things that it has to make decisions on. We haven't gotten that down for, so some, we're still doing it by hand, but, but I think that that's where those kinds of edits are the kinds of things that I think we can get to a point where 
a lot of that can be done automatically, you know, where we just pu push it into a system and a lot of it gets, you know, processed and it feels better and we're not doing a lot of extra work. But I think that the create on the creative side, um, I think, that, and, and I think that there's also a, how authentic do we want it to sound? Like, I feel like taking those gaps out is really just reproducing the room. It's not really cutting out. We're not trying to cut out a lot of everything, what, what people said or suck all the air out of a, out of a conversation or, or other things like that. And one thing we're noticing in the, in the market, you always have to pay attention to what kids are doing, um, where kids are going, because they're kind of driving, they're always ahead of us. You know, they're always like thinking about something ahead of us. Like when I remember my, my kids were starting to text, my older kids were starting to text. And I was like, I don't understand this text thing. It's like, now I am like, why are you sending me an email? <laughs> like, like when you could have just texted me, like, like, I don't understand. Like, I, you know, I check my email like four times a day and I check, I, I have my text open all the time. So um, uh, in the same way, what we find are kids are leaning less and uh, leaning away from really highly finished work and leaning more and more towards kind of an authentic life experience you know, Snap, Snapchat is really, you know, um, where, you know, there's a, we're going to have some folks on talking about Snapchat in the future, but, but it's, it's really exploding um, for, for under 18. And they, but it's really life experience, you know, stuff where people are just kind of, they want it to be raw. So I'm not sure, you know, where that all fits into it. You know, I think that might be a reaction to AI, a reaction to overproduced, you know, content. So it's, it's, a, it, we always have to kind of keep track of that as well. And Alexander. I want to go back to something Alex said uh, a little bit ago about the junkification of social media. I'd make the argument that happened years ago before AI was Agreed. even around. I think oh, what you're I, describing I, is a people problem because there's always going to be junk content out there. Yeah, I, I think that there, there's a lot of junk content out there. Um, and But what I'm saying is that wow, can we magnify it? You know, like, you know, like, you know, now we can, now we can just, just, you know, just spew, like it, it's, it's taking bad, um, bad decisions and then amplifying them. You know, they say that, you know, to err is human, but to really screw things up requires a computer. And it's because it can do so many operations of, it can just simply amplify everything. So I think that the real challenge that we're going to have with social media is this, this idea that I can dice everything up and suddenly all these shorts and, you know, rather than there's something really, great in the sense of like the uh in tiktok you know like for instance i think tiktok lost a lot when it became overproduced you know like i think there's it's it's nice to see it but but it was there was something very raw that every once in a while you see on tiktok now but it it, it, it isn't nearly as fun as it used to be <laughs> because because it wasn't it's not as handcrafted now and I think, Alexander, to your point for Alex, of that what the AI tool, and I'm looking at um, John actually says, everybody can become a spammer with AI, which is very true. But for those who use the tools well and taking a, taking out the, the tedious, the cutting, cutting, the, the spaces, I mean, the transcription, the, the, those things, and then being able to actually spend the time being creative so that you can give more thought to how you're going to shoot create or put something out into the world i think that's where being able to that's what we're going to see coming and, up is like those people who are able to be more creative alex and i want to i want to say i was uh, the um i was in a, i was having lunch a couple of weeks ago with a visual effects supervisor who used my first product the very first product i put out was called the surface toolkit the surface toolkit was basically i don't know what you would call ai 
but I built a series of actions inside of Photoshop. I took a bunch of pictures and I just shoved them into Photoshop and produced 4,000 images. And of those, pulled 80 that I liked and put them on a disc and sold them. And, and, you know, and, and, and made, you know, I don't know, a quarter million dollars over a summer. And, um, but that's, that helped launch my company. But it was a, um, it was, but it was literally just doing auto processing because there was no way I'd ever have time to get what I was trying to get to by hand. I did, took the photos by hand and I had an idea, but what I did is I worked on the algorithm of how it was going to do the, the imagery. And then I just hit go. And, and every night I would come, every morning I would come back in and there'd be all these images and I go, oh, that didn't really work. So I'd play with it a little bit more and I hit go again the next night. And so I, I, I finally came up with a mix, you know, kind of a magic mix to grab that stuff out. And so, you know, I've been doing some version of this for a long time um, and it wasn't impossible to do it any other way. So I think that there's ways for us to extract value out of things with these algorithms. Um, but I think that there's also just an incredible opportunity to just um, magnify what's already been problematic in social media. Jeffrey? Yeah, I totally agree on that. that that's that's crazy. Two more things I want to talk about. Uh, one was YouTube and that and how AI has been changing in YouTube and creating of the events, the creating of the videos itself. I use a program called TubeBuddy and there's another program called VidIQ and they're both working heavily on bringing AI into those productivity tools. Uh, so because if you've ever posted something to YouTube, you know, they ask a lot of questions. They tell you to fill out this, fill out this. Do you want to do monetizations on this? Do you have any copyright on here? This and that and the other thing. And to make uh, posting any type of video a lot easier, I've been doing, I personally do a lot of backend stuff. So I just put in a couple words and then it creates uh, content. This is pre-AI. And now with AI, I can, I can do a, a whole bunch of things like uh, figure out the SEO on that. What are the best keywords on that? Heat maps on the thumbnails. Uh, so I can put the thumbnail into the uh, into the program and it's basically telling me, okay, this is where people are going to click the, the most and this is what you might want to work on and uh, and and go from there. So the, that's that's a great thing for YouTube. And I don't know if you noticed this, but I'm wearing my own creation. I, I have done some t-shirts in the past and this is what's called Geeky AI. Started out with Midjourney and then of course with Midjourney, if you want to claim copyright on it, you got to make some adjustments to it, at least 25%. So that's what I did with this guy right here. Uh, and uh, it's just, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to be working with a lot more on the business end, not only with my logo, but also with uh, with fun little t-shirts and, and things like that. So I can uh, put them out on my channel. Nice. Alexander? Yeah, so one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot lately as I start to use some of these tools is the larger, more distressing philosophical conversation about losing work to AI and what does this mean as far as the value that I provide to clients for the type of work that I do? I mean, prime example uh, of this is using Opus to uh, remove the amount of work that I have to do every single week to create social media content. So it's really made me think about 
diversifying and figuring out and having a conversation, an honest, open, transparent conversation with my client that, you know, what other value can I provide? Can I help you with booking guests for the podcast? Can I maybe do things in other areas? I mean, ultimately, he still he needs to use me because he doesn't know how to he doesn't know how to use the gear. He hasn't made the same investment in the studio that I have. But it's it has worried me a little bit about what is this going to do to editors that have to edit this kind of content every week. And we already see this stuff with the script. I mean, we've got tools now that can actually create a multi-cam edit in a matter of minutes, whereas it, for, for a human being, it may take you hours and hours and hours to cut that show properly. So I, I'm curious what other people on the panel think about that. Nothing. I think part of like uh, the conversation we had last week, just productivity and the different tools or whatever our workflows are to free up like the human aspect of it. So the, the human intelligence can't be replaced. Like so in the use case that you've provided with the, your client, one, it's definitely going to be relationship building and making sure that trust factor of things and finding ways that, well, well how can you help them to grow? Because the tools that you're talking about is like the, the content aspect, but the strategy behind growth, the execution behind growth, like those are those elements that that's going to take thought and experience in that. So I'm just brain dumping as you as you shared those aspects. So like even for us company wise, we're looking at those ways with our clients of, well, these tools are here saving them time from either learning them or training them being steps ahead is always going to put you in a position of of need and value so instead of looking at okay what's going to replace me next as much as okay how can i continue to add value to this client and that trust because alex shares this all the time many of us on the panel have shared that clients, they either stay with us or they find us because of referral and those referrals come from trust. So that's just some of the ways that um, that I think about it. And um, Alex? Yeah, so I, num number one is I've, I've probably had six or seven different careers, you know, since I was 20 or, you know, and I just keep moving through them. Like I, I'm always leaving one for the next, you know, like in, 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 and evolving. And I can see where I'm trying to get to in the future. Um, a lot of times I'm, I think that we used to we used to always say with visual effect shots is that you never finish a visual effect shot. You just you just run out of time. You know, like you just you know like and this is as good as it's ever going to get. In the same sense, you always want to look at no matter how t good technology gets within computer graphics. If you're looking at something like a Pixar a film, generally it averages out to 45 minutes a frame, and it has been that way. So you, just so you know, in the industry, it's been 45 minutes a frame for like 25 years. <laughs> you know, it has not changed. The quality of what we can do in each one of those frames had, keeps on getting better. But we keep on, you know, you, and you think that you're going to get rid of folks like that. And and there are things that are, are um, uh, there are many tedious things that like, so for instance, match moving used to be an entire building at ILM. I always pointed out when someone's visiting because our office is in the old, where all the old industrial light and magic was. And I always point over and go, that used to be match moving. People used to have to take a box and they'd put it in the scene and they'd figure out the, they'd have to figure out the focal length. And then they would sit there and painstakingly animate um, a, uh, you know, a camera. 
And then over time, we figured out how to automate that. And those, the best of those folks ended up just learning the new software and then doing it. The folks that weren't as good at it either went on to do something else, but, you know, and, and again, what they did is they got, they just did their job better because they had tools that were better that, that allowed them to do it. Same thing with rotoscoping. Rotoscoping was something that was done. Um, you know, and I get it. We're going to try to get um, a friend of mine on that started off in mo- in the model shop really as an assistant at ILM and now is doing Unreal Engine. <laughs> like, you know, he's, you know, and he's doing and he and and he has not he's, he just keeps on evolving with whatever new tools are available to him. He keeps figuring it out. I think he's in his 70s now and he's just cooking along, you know, just something new, um, you know, to, to work in. And so we want to look at that as a um, uh, uh, you know, we want to look at that as a lesson. Right. As as that we want to keep evolving with those tools. I think that there's I know I don't know what your podcasts are like. I know the podcast that I work on, we could always make it better. You know, and if we had tools that will make it that will improve the quality and tighten the, 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 the process, make it more visual, make it available for both audio and video. Like, for instance, we stream the um, gray matter. Um, uh, we streamed uh, gray matter as a uh, uh, if you go to graymatter.show, you'll see this this show that we do, but it's only on audio. If you watch the stream, you'll see the stream. You know, so if you you watch it on YouTube, if you're there for the live event, that's us evolving that video version of it that we're going to eventually release. But we were sit, sitting there playing with it, and man, would I love to have more automated tools to make that work. <laughs> you know, like and so I don't look at that replacing it. I only look at it as giving me the tools that I need so that I can keep on creatively going down the path. And, and, and everything that's tedious that you're doing right now is something that's holding you back from being more creative, you know? And so, so how do we get rid of the tedium um, so that we can continue to just say, this is what I want um, that's in front of me. And I think that that's the, that's the real power of being able to express our ideas. Um, so I think for your client, you know, I think that one of the things we're doing with Gray Matter is this idea of a live show where people can take live questions and, um, and then apply them. I think that's a really powerful format. Uh, I don't think a lot of people are doing it. And I think that we're doing it and we're kind of, I think it's going to be something that's going to be a big deal because we have to figure out, um, I think once a lot of people start doing this idea that I'm going to broadcast live for my recording and then I'm going to cut it into a podcast, when people get used to that, the power of that is you get so many more people that are asking questions online. It actually enriches it like this show. This show is the beginning of that. Uh, what would we, what would the six of us, I mean, we're talking about it now. <laughs> we're all having a discussion, but we're going to open it up to questions here in a second. And there's going to be 10 questions that are going to fill in the rest of the hour. And the first hour, what would we have talked about if we didn't have producers asking questions? <laughs> like, you know, like, like, so, so the, so, but the tools, we had to have all these tools in the back end, the software to make it work. You know, like, you know, in the software that we have, Makana, uh, to make that work is the only way we could get it done. We couldn't just sit there and ask, just, text us your questions? Like, how would we do that? So AI gives us, I think, all the all these tools allow us to just do our job better. And Bill. Well, I, I'm going to do it really quickly, but I, there is going to be a lot of disruption. You just can't get away from that. And, uh, you know, office hours, I think our audience is a self-selected group of people who are very curious, usually very technically savvy. And I, I think there will always be a way for people who are have those kind of skill sets to find a way, no matter what technology changes, no matter what comes in, you figure out a way to analyze, to notice the problem, analyze it, 
come up with solutions for it and implement those solutions. I mean, and there have been people throughout ages who, with whatever the technology is of the time, have been able to do that. I'm a, I'm a little more concerned about the disruption on the bottom end of society for people who do not have those kind of analytical skills, don't lean toward that. There used to be a lot of work for a lot of people who didn't want to take that path. They really just wanted their their job, eight to five, doing whatever they did, and then to go home and pursue their passions after that and have those two separate lives. And they weren't kind of engaged 24-7. And I do think that's going to cause more social problems as these bots and intelligent, artificial intelligences push more and more people to being more and more productive. There are going to be fewer and fewer people needed for the first category and probably a lot more people needed for the second. It's way beyond my understanding and the social scientists are going to have to figure that out and I hope they do. If you think that, we, we often say that if you think that your job is boring and brain dead, don't worry, you won't have to do it for much longer. Exactly, exactly. And that's that's very difficult for a big swath of humanity. All right. We've had a fiery intro conversation around AI and productivity. Let's get into our producer questions. Absolutely. Dave Trotman in Edmonton, Canada starts us off here. We talk a lot about using AI tools for brainstorming an idea. Would this also be useful for seeking inspiration? It seems like a good playground for notions and ideas. Alex? That's exactly what I use Midjourney for. Um, and even even uh, ChatGPT, more than anything else that, that I use AI for, it's just to brainstorm. It's just to think about a bunch of things that are um, unlike, uh, you know, unlike something else that I've that I've thought about. It comes up with solutions that I don't, not only would I not figure out, think of, is that nobody would think of. And you can produce hundreds of them. And then I look at them and I pull the stuff out. A lot of times I'm still hiring a concept person or somebody else to draw it out. Because I'll say, I like these four things. Now now go go draw something out for me. Um, but I'm able to, to dive through something and produce something that would have taken years to do by hand. Jeffrey? So with uh, when I spoke at Infocom, I used, uh, I had to create a PowerPoint. And I wanted to create a story around the PowerPoint. So what I did was I went to, uh, I went to Bard and ChatGPT to try and kind of figure out a, a good story to tell uh, around creating videos, uh, creating a home studio so you could do videos. Uh, and uh, I, I you had this great story uh, that needed photos. Uh, it was about a person who wanted to start a basket weaving podcast, and and uh, and so I needed a, a person to do that. So I went then went to Midjourney to try and find uh, to try and find a good image to use. I also went to Photoshop and the generative AI to do that as well. And the bigger thing is, and this is what I'm really hoping that Adobe is going to start striving for, is commonalities. So I could create a person and. I could create a person with multiple expressions, with more, you know, a happy person, uh, a sad face, and uh, and more. Because if you if you highlight and fill, it's just going to fill with somebody else's face. And sometimes the noses are off, and sometimes the smiles are off. But uh, I, I did a lot of work, and and this really is a trial and error type thing. You got to go through a lot of of uh, examples before you find the one that's going to work best for you in this case. And I'm hoping that's going to get a lot better in the years to come. But ultimately, I found uh, one where I could actually bring a person to life, 
give them a couple expressions, a couple movements, and uh, did a little bit of extra Photoshopping to make it happen, but it worked for me. So things like that for creating those presentations is is just one of those. It's, it's going to be a game changer, especially when things get better. Yeah, Dave, I totally agree with just, I just finished doing a campaign with ChatGPT where it was like, hey, can ChatGPT be a social media manager? And that started off with just putting all the data from the social platform, putting all the data of past posts in there, and then saying, okay, here's the, the end goal that we're trying to achieve. And then having ChatGPT help come up with concepts. And part of that was like, okay, hey, it's X day or these events are coming up. What do you think about this? And just like throwing some ideas and concepts at ChatGPT and then its ability to look at some of the past content that has been shared, how those things performed, how those pieces of content performed, and then being able to come up with an idea and then ah, that that's okay, but what about this? And just going back. So it's almost like having a writing partner or having someone to, to bounce some ideas off of and again it's got all that that data so it's also making some inferences on what could and couldn't work so yeah uh, we do that all the time and now even more so after doing that for 30 days um yeah just it, it's, it's definitely something that's helpful in that and not only from the social media and that content perspective but even from a business side of things and business ideas and and use cases like if we're looking at changing this service what what do you think would happen if xyz and putting out those scenarios and getting some of those concepts and those ideas back so highly like that's one of the main ways that that we use chat gpt john Trying to differentiate what Dave's asking here on brainstorming versus inspiration. I don't know if he's looking for a Tony Robbins AI to yell at him and walk across the coals and do better in life. I'm pretty sure that could happen. Throw in some like DID there and then you could probably <laughs> probably get that to happen. Next question. Next one comes to us from Elwesson Spiro in Berlin. Does the new bloom of AI bring us any closer to a world where more tasks and or jobs can be automated to the point where more governments can start considering implementing universal income? Alex? Yeah, probably not. Um, I think that the issue is, is that income without use is, is a really complicated pro process. Um, I think that the problem is, is that it would create inflation. Like, you know, like that, that's the real issue is, is that you'd end up with inflation um, and we haven't figured out how to solve that. You saw what we did when we dumped a bunch of money in the United States. We suddenly got a lot of inflation and that impacts, you know, people's savings and, you know, the cost of everything, the cost of life. You know, inflation is a tax that lasts forever. So when something goes up, you know, it's like, you know, we just, you know, and so, uh, so it's a really uh, a, a problem of dumping money into a market is it causes some in uh unexpected consequences. Now, saying that, I do think that as Bill talked about, we have to think about a large set of the population that didn't set them up for, didn't set themselves up for success um, in this environment. And I think, you know, I really think that there's a lot of people that just don't necessarily want to try to keep up with, you know, with everything that's going on here. And we should think about where we can provide opportunities for them to, you know, like, there, I think there's some people that would really like to just 
go work on a just work casually on a farm, you know, and not have to, you know, and 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 build something that's a little bit more, uh, you know, it's a little slower. I'm using some of the technology to make it really efficient. Um, but, you know, the, they have a hard problem. They had a hard time in one of the countries I worked in Africa because the farmer, the average farmer works about 15 hours a, a week. It's really hard to get them to work more. <laughs> like they've been doing this their whole life. And, you know, they, they, it's, it's hard in the spring or it's hard in, the, in this country. It was, they had three planting cycles every year because there's no, no cold. And, um, and so, but they, you know, it's hard for a little while and then hard at the end. In the middle, they mostly hang out with their friends. <laughs> and so, and, you know, and make sure that nothing, nothing happens. And it was really hard to get them to do more. And we have to question, you know, we've decided that 40 hours a week is the number, but maybe it's not. Maybe it's 15 hours a week. Maybe it's 20 hours a week. Maybe it's, you know, that type of thing. Um, so I think that that, you know, I think we want to look at, you know, whether we really worry about that. Um, but I do think that it's going to be hard. Um, uh, I think that... I think it's hard to give, just give people money, you know, like to make that happen. I mean, I think that the, there are places where we could say that you put some in or something, but we're, we've got a lot of, you know, our, our most, most of the Western economies are about to become very top heavy, you know, and, and so for them to add more, more resources, I'm just not sure where the money would come from, you know, because this would work great if we if they were having more kids, but they're not. And so, or if they had, if they had a massive increase of, uh, immigration, which they're not. Um, but without those things, the United States is reaching point of no return. Most of Europe's already reached point of no return. Most big chunks of Asia have already reached point of no return. Point of no return is 1.6 replacement rate. Once you see that below that, you're on a, you're on the spiral. <laughs> like, you know, unless, until you start bringing it, until you start increasing immigration, you have no chance of recovery. Um, and so, uh, so the, um, so the, so I think that the problem is they just, they're going to have less and less money over the next couple of decades to spend um, on the number of people that, that they already have. So that's going to be problematic. Bill? It's a difficult uh, circumstance. I know uh, Scandinavian countries, I can't remember whether it was Norway or Denmark, did a, a pretty large, long-scale uh, test of uh, guaranteed universal income for a while. And it, they stopped doing it after some years. I think they got the data that they needed. Um in terms of sustainable income, that's probably one thing. I do think that as this gets, as so many people get displaced, um, you're going to, some nations or uh, areas are going to have to make the decision. If it gets so tough that people can't sustain themselves, and they're literally, I hate to use the word, but literally starving because they just can't find any employment, then some sort of safety net at the bottom may become necessary for a period of time until people figure this out. Uh, that doesn't mean life will be easy or good for those people, but at least it won't cause the massive uh, mess that that would cause, although cultures have gone through that somehow. It's, it's cruel and it's difficult, but... This, these are tough problems, and they're not going away anytime soon. We're going to have to, you know, countries, governments, uh, the whole world's going to have to deal with them. And Jeffrey. Yeah, the only way that I could see this happening is if we start using uh, AI to determine stocks, determine uh, financial directions, uh, other than just the, you know, hey, write me a blog post uh, or write me 10 titles on, on this or that. There are countries, of course, that uh, are banning AI and they're the usual sus suspects, although you've seen that one of them is even though that that's banned, they're still using it. 
and they're they're finding ways around that type of architecture so even if there was regulation uh, there would definitely be a whole bunch of people trying to get around that system and i think it's just going to be way too hard to do any type of regulation like that next question John Snyder in Reno, Nevada, says ChatGPT is rolling out several important features currently in beta, code interpreter, custom instructions, and plugins. How have you used these features to become more productive? Go ahead, John. So code interpreter is a playground. It's like Swift playground, but it's for Python. So it's it's okay for developers to go in there and kick the tires, etc. Custom instructions now, it, um, Alex might find this useful. His setup where he says act like you're Feynman reporting to a fifth grader, you could save that as a as a custom instruction so you don't have to type it in every time. That's custom instructions. And plugins right now, there's over 600, and most of them are clean show. Uh, I have been using plugins. I find them super helpful. Um, some of the ones, some of my faves is like prompt perfect. So I will put in a prompt and then it then takes that and it's like, okay, here's an even better way for you to say or synthesize that prompt. Um, also show me diagrams. So when there's a certain type of project that we're working on and just needing that visual representation to determine the workflow, um, going using it from that perspective, I've got a lot of friends who use the travel ones to help them plan travel. So the plugins were definitely a great addition to ChatGPT. Next question. Morgan Price in Victoria, British Columbia is up next. Any AI Foley apps out there or AI text to ambient sounds apps? Are there text to speech and text to image or there are text to speech and text to images? Why not text to other sounds? John? So anytime you're looking for a new application, just go to futuretools.io and search in there. I found a, an, an image to sound effect, and then it also lets you put a description in. It's open source, and it's not great, but you'll you'll find this feature uh, ended up being integrated into one of the big ones. So, so remember the turn of the century, there was over a thousand auto manufacturers, and how many of those are left today? That's exactly what's going to happen in the AI industry. So the majority of these ap applications, just exactly like Alexander said, will all go away. And Morgan, I will have to, because I'm streaming today through my iPhone, so I couldn't pull up the app. There's one I found a couple of weeks ago. I think it's like Movio or Mode. Some, it's it's an M1, um, an AI tool where you can put in your prompts and it makes music. So I thought that was phenomenal. And I started to test it out a bit because that is tremendously helpful for creating some background music for some shorts or different content so that you know, like you can exactly set the mood um, that you want. So I will, once the show's done, <laughs> put it, put it in, um, in discord for you and Jeffrey. Yeah. Yeah. I've played with uh, actually a few of those apps, not only in desktop, but also on phone and, uh, they're not really, I don't think they're quite there yet. Uh, definitely, uh, a little bit of jitteriness and then uh, you also have to worry about if your AI making any type of music that you have to check it or else if it's very very close to another song you can get a copyright strike on it so that's just something to, to, to keep in mind if you're uh, creating anything AI for music sound effects might be a different story but definitely for music next question Claudic Lopez Waterman, Brevard, North Carolina. What dangers are there in having AI help with generating code? John? 
the the danger is productivity loss and so uh, the code that it writes today is mediocre at best and so most programmers spend 25% of their time coding and 75% debugging and so they want tools on AI to help them debug and not write the code so much uh, but I, I'll tell you, 100% of all programmers in the next five years will be using AI tools to develop code. And Alex. Yeah, I think that the externalization of ideas and so on and so forth is the problem. And, and also, I think that the advanced advanced coders will do much better at this than beginner coders who won't know the difference between what's working and what's not working. Um, you know, so the advanced coder, as far as accelerating what they can already do, and this is where, this is the danger that Bill talked about, is that if you're advanced, this is AI is going to make you much more valuable because you're going to be able to amplify your uh, skill set. Um, so, so for and this gets into that the separation of the haves and the have-nots is not really a people having money, but it's people having knowledge. And so, if you've got a lot of knowledge right now, you're able to amplify that and become more valuable. Your hour is worth more because you can do all these extra things, um, but you're doing it at the cost of the folks that don't have that, that don't know the difference between good and bad, uh, you know, of, of what they're doing. Um, is that that puts them at a, at a high in a high risk position? And the question is, is, how do you get more advanced people if they don't have years of being unadvanced <laughs> so, or non advanced? And and that's the that's always the problem. I mean, that's how you. That's why we don't have any machining and or real at scale anymore. Is because we stopped making stuff. We sent it to China, and then there was nowhere to build a precision machinist, you know, or, or train one because that takes ten years, you know, of of someone just doing stuff at a reasonably good. Size. So I think that that's going to be the, the challenge. I think that it puts more pressure on schools. Now, the good, the good news is AI is going to make it easier to teach a lot of things. The bad news is, or, or any good for schools, you may have to stay in school. Like this is another thing that we have to think about. We were talking about over the weekend with a friend of mine. School may last until you're 30. Like there may, no, may not be uh, entry-level jobs. You may have to get really good at what you do and by the time you're 30, and you may spend a lot of time in training before that happens, um, because you just may not be competitive. Um, you can't just get out of school. Because right now, I think that school is mostly just proving that you went. Like, you know, college is not really that. I mean, it's you have a degree. Um, it doesn't, you, you, most people who leave college with a bachelor's degree are, you know, in my world, in my production space, almost useless. Like, you know, like they're, you know, I would prefer, I would have much rather had them at 18 you know, and had them working on projects with me uh, for four years than go to school because they come out with a bunch of ideas from people who didn't, haven't done production in a long time and, um, and don't know what they're doing. And so I have to retrain everybody to do that. So school has been kind of like a, a thing that we thought was necessary but it's about to become really important. It's going to be the thing that you have to have a safety place where your your income is paid for, you're handled, and then you have to stay in it for a long time and prove that you can get it. And, and you're either going to um, you're either, you're either going to get into a job or go work on a farm. You know, so there won't be a lot of different, won't be a lot of space in between. Next question. Al Worsen Sparrow, back from Balloon. Has anyone had problems with the accuracy of ChatGPT? I somewhat distrust it because if they ask, are you sure, multiple times in a row, it'll keep changing its answers. It seems to lack confidence in itself, which erodes my confidence in it. Point well taken. John? This in the industry is called hallucinations, and it will do hallucinations. I have a client that makes a nutraceutical, and we were looking for clinical studies, and both BARD and ChatGPT manufactured clinical studies that were totally fake. 
And so the, so you have to drill down into your answers, unfortunately, right now. Jeffrey? Yeah, whenever I've used it to do a quick review of a product or anything like that, I definitely have to read through it because sometimes it'll take me in a, t a completely different direction, especially if there's two different products that share the same name. And then it's getting confused as to product A versus product B. And then it's telling you things like the features of product A. And then all of a sudden it jumps over and goes from there. Plus you have right now chat GPT, the most dangerous part of chat GPT is the free tier versus the paid tier because the free tier is reference only and a lot of people seem to kind of dismiss that uh, that thought thinking oh this is going to be perfect for me and then they're starting to write a whole bunch of stuff that's not going to get uh, checked with t with current information and then uh, next thing you know some disinformation is going to come out there and I'm going to I'm expecting that the uh, that the reference version of chat GPT is going to have to go in the next couple of years because of this disinformation. Next question. Morgan Price in Victoria, British Columbia. How are people using AI to collaborate on drafting scripts for fiction or nonfiction productions? Anyone try pseudowrite.com for this. It's a fiction writing app. Alex? I've not used pseudowrite. I've actually used ChatGPT for this and, and been surprised. I feel like I could build a whole podcast, uh, not a podcast, but a whole YouTube channel just asking for a script from uh, from from uh, ChatGPT and then doing it. Like just, I'm just going to do the script the way it came in. I I had one where I, um, I, I said I wanted two snails falling in, uh, I wanted a ro romantic comedy action thriller of two snails falling in love in a classroom lab and it made it <laughs> and it was was it going to win an oscar no was it as good as most saturday morning cartoons 100 percent. like it was it, it definitely it, it had it had moments of rom-com it had moments a mo little romance and it was very predictable but it was very much like what you would expect with we did have two snails racing through the uh um, the aquarium or whatever that they were in. Um, anyway, so I, I, and I was, I thought this would actually, if I made this video, it'd probably get a lot of, if I did it well in Unreal, probably get a lot of views. So I think that it can produce, I don't know if I could produce a whole movie worth watching, but I think little shorts, it could be, it could be a lot of fun. Next question. Alexander Knight in Vancouver, BC. What is the process for getting ChatGPT to create show notes for a podcast? Can I upload an MP3 for this? John? Yeah, I don't know about show notes. This is interesting. I would I would load the MP3 into Mac Whisper, and that would that would create the whole script for the whole show, and then I would I would summarize that in ChatGPT. That's how I would do it. Jeffrey, yeah, I was thinking uh, something like Otter. I, I'm not sure. It does I'm assuming ChatGPT. This is one of the uh, beta features, is to uh, bring in audio. But uh, I would always what I've done is uh, things like Otter or bringing it into uh, into something like Premiere Pro that does uh, 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 trans transcribing uh, options and then bringing it into something like ChatGPT to do summary uh, to get better answers from there. Likewise, what has been said, or even something like the script. So just basically, you need the transcription, and then yes, get ChatGPT, Baird, um, etc., to take your show to create your show notes. Next question. Craig McFarland, Boston, Mass. How are you avoiding eating up AI productivity games with tool and or plugin review and management? John. So this is the nice thing about GitHub. GitHub, you have a ability to provide feedback via stars on open source projects, and then once we see a preponderance of stars. On a particular open set, we know that it's good, it's a good uh, release of product. Next question. 
Morgan Price, Victoria, British Columbia. Can AI apps give us realistic and variable voices? Can AI voices whisper up close or yell from a distance? Alex? I don't think it can yet, but I, I think that we should be assuming that this is coming, you know, where you're going to have uh, a voiceover tool. I, I think that what's probably coming is a voiceover tool where you can just start rolling through voices, um, building voices out um, for for these things, and then being able to direct those voices by just saying, this is whispering, this is yelling, this is speaking, this is sad, this is whatever. And you could put all those things into it um, and allow it to, to reproduce those things. I, I, I think we're probably two or three years away from that. And I think it will for the, not the top tier, but the tier below that, like one or two tiers below um, the average fictional novel that gets put out on Audible, you're going to see these things. And it's not going to be one person impersonating six people. It will be six different voices with a narrator and there'll be a lot of bits and pieces to it. Um, And again, it'll be at a level that you couldn't, that those books couldn't afford because they just don't have the runs because it's one thing to hire somebody for $5,000 to do a voiceover, uh, of, you know, do an audible book. It's another thing to hire, you know, 25 actors or 30 actors to, to do something like the BBC does for some of these things. Um, that's a really much more expensive process that doesn't happen for smaller books. And I think you're going to see it happening for smaller books, um, within the next five years. And Bill? It'll come, but it's going to be interesting. There will need to be a markup language for variability if it's ever to going to be anything other than machine. I mean, if you after they've done a hundred mystery novel automated voiceovers for ACX or Audible, you're going to have the problem where all of those sentences start sounding exactly the same, particularly if they use non-variabled. AI voices. So somebody's going to have to go in there and say, you know, a, a reader would do this one up, or they'd end that sentence down. You can set some Boolean rules and things like that. If this sentence structure, then close the period. If not, lead over that line into the next. The things that human voices do naturally that gives you that authenticity and variability. There will be some of that, but I would expect that the markup of the script would take almost as long as doing the voiceover. So I'm not sure at that point whether it's more efficient to have a human being who's really good at the job do the job. I don't know. We'll see. Next question. Douglas Carmichael, a Cleveland-based company, is using GPT-3 to generate commentary and playlists. Could you see AI displacing radio workers? Alex? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, there's so many things that um, can be done. Again, I think that there are... um, I think commentary is a little harder, but but play by play is something that for again smaller things could eventually be you know in, in, in be incorporated. But the big thing is is all the stuff that is, you know the the um, station IDs, uh, the stock updates, what happened today, and whatever. All of the, there's many things that you would that right now we have humans reading that are really again these are the tedious things that you put in audio, and I think those kinds of things you're going to see um, you know again. Humans will be doing creative things. The machines will be doing everything else. And there just won't be a lot of jobs to just do uh, rote work. I think that's what we have to really look at. If you're doing rote work right now, you need to figure out how to move forward quickly. And Jeffrey. 
I, I think that this it's yeah it's definitely going to do it but it's radio is already being displaced unless you're doing a talk show uh you know the tape recorder display uh changed the way that uh some radio djs work because then they could work at like two o'clock in the morning create a couple things and then uh, put together a show and then have that uh run on air uh for a lot of these small tasks i would guess you know these were all intern type tasks so uh and interns are still needed so you know it, it, so they get credit for their college. So I would guess that a lot of this stuff, although they might use AI, will most likely uh, be uh, still there. Well, that's a wrap on another great AI conversation. Thank you so much to our producers for all of your questions. And, and the chat was, there's so much discussion happening in the chat and to our panelists for your insight stories. And of course, sharing the tools that you're using and our backend production team for without which this would not be possible. Just a reminder that tomorrow we'll be talking about Apple Vision Pro, like it was released. What do we, what are people People doing yet and all of that great conversation happening tomorrow. If you want to learn more about what's taking place for the rest of the week, head over to officehours.global. And let's see how far we went today on the Talak Traversal. That is 101,563 miles and 163,449 kilometers. That's more than 804 million bananas for scales 4.1 times around the earth. Thank you so much, everyone. And we will see you in after hours on the next show. <laughs> Bye. I know we have to get this whispering to be out of here. Now we can just whisper. We have a whole bunch of things we want AI to say. AI will just give us all the information. Right. All right, y'all. Bye. Thank you, everyone. Liberty, great job as always. Good to see you. Thank you. Thank you all. Stay cool down there. Try. <laughs> Bye, y'all. Jeffrey Alexander. Place.